scripture reading this morning is Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city. I think that for uh, every one of us, uh, there comes some point in our lives uh, where we question God. Sometimes we question God um, on the basis of just things that we observe in life. Uh, sometimes we question God perhaps because we have even an experience, a bad experience with people who claim to know God. And so we start to question the sincerity of their faith, and that starts to make us raise questions about our own understanding of God. And we question God there. We have various reasons for why we question God. We, we question God because we, we hear other people questioning God, and, 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 and just, there can be a lot of reasons why we would question God. I heard just recently of a young man who lost somebody very close to him. And, of course, he's, he's questioning God. Why, why did this happen? There, there can be all kinds of reasons why we might go through a time or a phase where we question God. And what we find as we come to uh, this fourth chapter here in the, the book of Jonah, we're finishing up our series on the book of Jonah, and what we find here is that Jonah... Is questioning God. Now, literally in this passage, it's God that's questioning Jonah. He's the one asking the questions. Uh, but God's questions are really rhetorical questions that are really there to defend himself against Jonah's unspoken questioning. 
You see, Jonah doesn't voice his questions. He doesn't say what they are, but, but he's questioning God, and we see that not so much through his words as through his actions. We see that he's questioning God by the fact that he, he runs away from God. God tells him to go right, and he goes left. Evidence that he's questioning God. We see that he's questioning God by the fact that at the end of this, this whole story, he, he sits outside of, of Nineveh, and he's hoping that it doesn't go the way God wants it to go. Like, he's hoping it doesn't go the way God wants it to go, because he just, he's not in sync with God. He's questioning God. And so it's not through what he says, it's through, it's through his actions. I think, isn't that true of us sometimes? We, we may be questioning God, we may not even voice it. We might not even say that we're questioning God, but, but it's evident through our actions, it's evident perhaps through our reluctance to trust him. Perhaps evident through our reluctance to worship. Maybe we don't really get all that excited about praising him and singing songs to him. And, and, and even maybe we don't get excited about being with him. And, and maybe that, that actually is evidence that we're questioning God. Last week, we looked at chapter 3. And what we saw in that chapter, the, the central theme that emerges in that chapter, is that God's compassion is available to all people. God's compassion is sort of the theme of this whole book. Uh, We saw in the first chapter God's unstoppable compassion. Uh, In the second week, we saw God's incomparable compassion. In the third week, we we saw God's compassion is available. It's available to all people. We saw that there is no criteria by which God, God uses to offer his compassion, that he offers his compassion to everyone. Now, there is a criteria by which it is received. There is a criteria by which we receive God's compassion, and that criteria is that we turn to him. Right? I use the analogy that God is like a football player, and he's throwing footballs of compassion to all of us, but for some of us, it's hitting us in the back of the helmet. Because if you want to receive it, you have to turn. You have to turn to God, and that's, that's what repentance is all about. It's turning to God. But we see that there's... there's There's a criteria by which we receive it, that's repentance, turning to God, but there's no criteria by which he offers it, that it's it's available to all people. He doesn't limit it to geographical region. You can live anywhere, and God's compassion is available. Uh, He doesn't limit it to to good behavior. Uh, Jonah receives his compassion, and and Jonah clearly does not have good behavior. We see that the Ninevites, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're not walking with the Lord when he comes to them, and so we, we see He offers them compassion. It's not based on their good behavior. It's not limited to that. And we saw it's not limited to uh, a particular race or a particular nation or a particular culture. It's available to all. And it's on that point that Jonah raises his question. Jonah's question is, is it really right that God's compassion is available to all? And, and if we probe this a little bit more, we're going to see that Jonah, he kind of has a point here, uh, particularly with, with knowing the story of the people of Israel, because what Jonah wants to say, the unspoken things that he wants to say to God are, hey, wait a minute, why are you showing compassion on the Ninevites when we, the Israelites, we are your chosen people? We're the ones you made your special covenant with. Why are you treating, and, and the whole book of Jonah, and we saw this, there's like these role reversals where it's like the Ninevites are acting like the Israelites. God's treating them like they're the Israelites. And Jonah's like, wait a minute. Didn't you 
choose us? Aren't we your special people? Right? I mean, come on, God. I can see this is what Jonah wants to say. He wants to pull out his Bible, and he wants to say, hey, God, did you forget about what you said to, to Moses? I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Did you forget what's in, uh, what's in Deuteronomy? Did you, did you forget this verse too? For, you said this, God. You said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Jonah's like, wait a minute. Why are you treating them like they're, you know, we're, you're our, the relationship here, the covenant relationship here, you are our father. We are your children. You know, it would be a little bit like, imagine this. Imagine if your father started to treat some neighborhood kid like he was his child, right? So, so your father starts taking the neighborhood uh, friend fishing on fishing trips, just special time together with your dad and the neighborhood kid. And he, you know, he throws a birthday party, he throws birthday parties for the neighborhood kid. And, and the father's even saving up money for the neighborhood kid's college. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, I thought I was your son. Why are you, why are you treating him the same way you're treating me? What's, I thought we had a special relationship here. And what is God's answer? Well, here's how he answers this question. He basically says this. He says, Jonah, before you knew me as Yahweh, I was known as Elohim. Before you knew me as Yahweh, I was known as Elohim. You see, there are two Hebrew words in this passage that are used to refer to God. There's the word Yahweh and there's the word Elohim. And these two words are translated respectively as Lord and God in our, in our translations. And these two names, the, the name Yahweh translated as Lord, this is the name that was given to Moses. It was the covenantal name. It was the revealing of God to Moses, and this is the name that is to be associated with the covenant that he's making with the people of Israel. Elohim, however, is a word that was used to just refer to him as God, as the creator God, the God who created all things. And so what, what, what we find in here is God's hinting at this fact, hey, before you knew me as Yahweh, I was Elohim. I, I am the creator God. In other words, I created everything. I created the plants, the animals, I created the, the, the Ninevites. You see, this is why he keeps talking about animals and wanting to save the animals and all this kind of stuff. He's, I am the creator God. I created everything. And this is revealed in this ridiculous story about the plant. It's kind of where this is all going. Story with the plant. Jonah sits outside Nineveh. He's, he's hoping to see some fireworks, hoping to see uh, a little Sodom and Gomorrah, hoping God will get a little Old Testament on uh, the people in Nineveh. Right, uh, a little hellfire and brimstone. That's what he's hoping is going to happen to the Ninevites. And so he's waiting there, and, and he's sitting outside. Of course, unfortunately, the Mesopotamian desert is pretty hot, and so he tries to build himself a, a shelter, but again, it's kind of hard to find good materials for a shelter in the desert. So apparently this shelter doesn't work very well. And so God, in his compassion, provides this plant. 
for Jonah. And this plant grows up over his head and provides shade for him. But then to make his point, God you know, gets rid of the plant. Jonah gets all angry. And then, then God's able to make his point. And his point is he's like, look, you care really deeply about this plant. You're so mad that this plant isn't here anymore. You care about this plant. You care about this created plant. Shouldn't I care that much more about these Ninevites that I also created? You see, it's all mine. I care about all of creation. See, he's, he's essentially saying, he's saying, look, yes, I am Yahweh, but before that I was Elohim. And so really all of the world's people are my people. It would be a little bit like you finding out that that neighborhood kid actually is your father's son. Oh, wow. Think about that. That neighborhood kid is your brother. That's what he's saying. See, when we look at different cultures, different nations, different races, different, even different groups within our own culture, do we, do, do we see them, in a sense, as our brothers, as all created by the same God? Do we see bikers and, and hipsters and old people and young people and what, whatever? I don't even know all the words these days. Do we look at them and see them? You know, this, this person is created by God. He loves them. They're, they're, they're like a brother to me. And so we could... We could we could say, okay, well, that's it. That's the story of Jonah. That's what this is all about. And this is an important lesson for us, right? Do we see the world the way God sees the world? Do we see people that are not part of our community, part of our family, do we see them as less than, as not, not, not that they're less than necessarily quality-wise, but we just don't really care about them as much? I mean, do we see the world the way God sees it? And do we have the compassion for those people the way he does it? And, and that, that's a very important lesson which emerges from the book of Jonah. We could close it and we could be done. But there's something more going on here. It doesn't quite answer all that's happening in this passage. Because there's one thing we really have to get, we, we really have to try to understand in this passage. And that is, why is Jonah so angry? Why is he so angry? I mean, is it, really, is it really just that he selfishly wants it all to himself? I mean, maybe, but I mean, we're talking about a guy, he, he, he's so mad that God wants to go pour compassion on the Ninevites that he's like, I, I would rather run away from God. He says several times in the story, I would rather die than the Ninevites receive God's compassion. What's going on there? Why is he so mad? And of course, if we take this story and set it within its historical context, here's what we realize. Jonah is mad because here's what he understands. God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. We set this in its context. Jonah lived in the middle of the 8th century B.C. And he goes to Nineveh, right? Okay. And then within one or two generations, the Assyrian Empire marches into Jonah's homeland, northern Israel, destroys his kingdom, deports about 30,000 Israelites to Assyria, wipes out northern Israel, and northern Israel as a nation would never rise again. 
And what was the capital of the Assyrian Empire? Nineveh. So Jonah realizes God is calling him to go be the instrument of compassion on the very people who within a few generations are going to wipe out his entire country. Jonah realizes that God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. We see this even in the story, if you go back to chapter 1, the story of the pagan sailors. Right At first it seems like the, the sailors are the recipients of some seriously bad luck. How do we get this Jonah guy on here? Things are not going well, right? But then it turns out that Jonah coming and being on their boat was the best thing that could possibly have happened to them because it was through their encounter with Jonah that they came to to see the power of Yahweh, the power of God. They, They came to see his compassion. He poured out compassion on them. And then they actually, it seems like there's actually a sense of reconciliation. They actually start to worship him. Their relationship with God is initiated and it's all because of of Jonah, but let's remember what happened to Jonah. He gets thrown into the ocean. It's through Jonah's casting off that salvation comes to the pagan nations. Jonah realizes that God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. Jesus picks up on this same theme. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's he saying? He's saying we're called as the people of God to pour out compassion on this world. And it comes at our own expense. Jonah realizes that God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. We see this in the parable, of the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story? It's actually a story that is quite similar to the story of Jonah. Younger brother says to his father, I want my inheritance now, which is basically saying, I wish you were dead. Because then, as it is now, you don't usually get your parents' money until they're dead. But he asks for it now. It's a way of saying, I wish you were dead. He gets his inheritance. He, he goes off, uh, and he comes back. And what happens? You know, he, he says, I'm so sorry, right? And, and, and what does he do? He, he says, I'm not worthy of being your son. But the father says, no, I, you are my son. And he throws this big party, slays the fattened calf, welcomes him back as a son. And and again, then the elder brother, he looks on this, he's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? How is he, he forfeited his right? And of course, again, what what does this represent? That the older brother represents the people of God, the Israelites, and the younger brother represents the tax collectors, the sinners, the pagan nations. And so again, what's this all about? Well, it, when, when, the, when the father goes out to talk to the elder brother, because the elder brother won't come into the party, right? And he has to go out and explain to him, sound familiar? 
The elder brother in Jonah, it's the same thing. The father has to go out and try to explain to him. And what does he say? Well, he says, no, he is my son. He is my son. Yes, he forfeited that, but he's still my son, right? And this is, again, it's a way of saying, yes, the pagan nations, they may have turned away from me, but they are still my people. But there's also something in that. There's more to it than just the elder brother, you know, not wanting to share with the younger brother. Because here's what we have to realize is that when the younger brother gave up his inheritance, what that means is that the rest of the estate, that was all going to go to the elder brother. That's all his. The younger brother already got his portion of the inheritance. And so when the younger brother comes back and the father throws a party for the younger brother and slays the fattened calf, guess whose expense that's coming at? It's coming at the expense of the elder brother. It's coming at the expense of God's people. Jesus is saying that compassion for the world, God's compassion for the world comes at the expense of his own people. I mean, imagine if you, imagine if somebody, imagine if somebody robbed your house and stole, stole money from you. Imagine, and, and, you know, they come in, they take your TV, and they, they take your valuable thing, they take your car, whatever. They, suppose they take about $10,000 worth of stuff, and they, and they go out, and, and then you, you, you go, and you take them to court, right? And, and the, the judge decides to have compassion. He says, no, you don't have to pay back. You don't have to pay back. I'm compassion on you. It's like, wait a minute, that compassion's coming at my expense, You see, the question which Jonah is asking is simply this. Where is the justice in this? Where is the justice in the idea that God's compassion comes at the expense of other people? Where is the justice in in the idea of throwing a party for the the irresponsible younger brother at the expense of the faithful older brother? Where is the justice in, in offering compassion to these pagan sailors at the expense of throwing some poor guy in the ocean? Where is the justice in sending a prophet to preach compassion to a nation who then are going to turn around and completely wipe out his head? Where is the justice in this? Where is the justice? And, and this is the cry that you find throughout the Old Testament Scripture. Is the people of God crying out for justice. Just read a few in the Psalms. Rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? 74 verse 10. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Of course, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Where is the justice in a God who offers compassion at the expense of other people? But, of course, there's a flip side to that question, too. Because, you see, what Jonah's getting at here 
is how can God be compassionate without compromising his justice? How can he do it? How can he be compassionate without compromising his justice? But there's a flip side to that question too. And that is, how can God show his justice without compromising his compassion? Right? So let's imagine the story of the prodigal son. Let's imagine that the son comes back, the younger son comes back and says, you know, can you take me back? And the father says, sorry, you got your inheritance, you wasted it, it would not be fair for me to take from your brother to help you out. I'm sorry, that wouldn't be just. No, that's just, but where's the compassion? What if, again, you, you, you know, some guy comes in, steals $10,000 of stuff from your house, and the judge says, yep, justice is. You need to pay him back. You've got to pay every cent back. Of course, all we know, for all we know, the reason he stole from you is because his wife has cancer, and he can't afford to pay the bills. But still, justice, justice, no, justice, that is not right. But, but where's the compassion? So you see that there's these two questions which we can levy against God. We can question God on both fronts. Some of us question question His justice. We question His justice, and and if you're one of those people who questions His justice, then when you read the Bible and you read all these stories about compassion and forgiveness, and and maybe even like the parable of the prodigal son, you're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. How can you? That's not just. That's not right. And so compassion is something you really struggle with. Forgiveness is, is, is difficult for you. Maybe you have been the victim of injustice. Maybe you've, you've had something that has happened to you and, and, and you've asked yourself, well, where was God in that? God, where were you? And some of us, we question God's justice and we just don't understand how he can be so compassionate, just like Jonah, just like the elder brother. Some of us, on the other hand, we question God's compassion. We question his compassion because we read through the Bible and we read these stories like Sodom and Gomorrah with judgment and all this, and, and, and we read about a God who threatens to send people to hell. How can a compassionate God threaten to send people to hell? So we question his compassion, right? How could he do this? And, and I actually think that in our culture, in modern Western culture, this is largely the question that most people ask. You hear it all the time. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God be a God of judgment and wrath? Right? That's the question that in our Western culture is usually asked. And I suspect the reason for that is because in modern Western culture, we take justice for granted. We take justice and equality for granted. Because by and large, in our country, certainly compared to much of the rest of the world, we have justice. We have basic protections for human rights, and that's not always perfect, but certainly compared to the rest of the world, we have justice. So we don't really see the need for a God of judgment. It seems like an intrusion on our progressive modern Western culture. But of course, if you don't live in America, if you live in other parts of the country where normal for you Is armed soldiers coming into your village and murdering your husbands and kidnapping your children and abusing your wives? Do you think you're going to have any problems worshiping a God who promises judgment? 
In fact, you're probably going to, it would probably be difficult for you to worship a God who didn't promise to bring judgment. Miroslav Volf. Let's see if I have it here. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. He puts it this way. The idea of a judge, or excuse me, the idea of a God who doesn't bring judgment can only exist in the quiet of a suburban home. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will invariably die along with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. So you see, we could question God from either side. Some of us question his compassion. Some of us question his justice. And so there this just sits, this ultimate question. And that is, how can God be both compassionate and just at the same time? Because you see, that's the question that emerges from the Old Testament Scriptures. Because throughout the Old Testament, we see the the revelation of God's character. We see some stories that reveal his righteousness and his justice. And then we see some other stories that reveal his compassion. And so we're led to believe that he's both compassionate and righteous. But we have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? How can God be both compassionate and just at the same time? And the answer is, Only if his compassion ultimately comes at his own expense. How can God be both a God of justice and a God of compassion at the same time? Only if his compassion ultimately comes at his own expense. Man steals $10,000 from you. Needs to pay bills for his wife, cancer. You take him to court. The judge shows compassion and says, you can go. I forgive you. And then the judge turns to you and he pulls out $10,000 out of his own wallet and says, here you go. Compassion and justice at his own expense. Friends, the heart of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, on the cross, God offers compassion to our world at his own expense. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21, it's on page 1,114 of your pew Bibles. What we're going to see is that the gospel, Christianity, is not some intrusion onto the world of the Old Testament. It's not a hijacking of the religion of the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of the very tension that emerges within the Old Testament scriptures. And that is how can God be both compassionate and just at the same time, only if his compassion comes at his own expense. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. 
But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then here, verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, he's anticipating this question. He said, yeah, where's the justice? Where's the justice? When is God going to pour? And so he pours out his justice, but it comes at his own expense. Not only is he just, but he's also the justifier. So you see, in light of the cross, God's compassion and God's justice are unquestionable. What are the implications of this for us today? Here's what I think the implications are for us today in light of the story of Jonah. And here's what it is. As the people of God, we are called to be the means through which compassion reaches this world. That's always been what it means to be the people of God. From the time of Abraham on, That's always been the ultimate goal, that God's people are the means through which God's compassion reaches this world. And so we are called to give and forgive sacrificially, but we are not called to bear the weight of that sacrifice. We're called to give and to forgive sacrificially, but we are not called to bear the weight of that sacrifice. We're called to give sacrificially. We're called to give of our time. We're called to give of our money. We're called to give of our resources. We're called to give sacrificially, but not to bear the weight of that sacrifice. And this is why at the heart of the Christian faith is your relationship with God. This is why the theme that is the most dominant, certainly in the writings of Paul, with regards to referring to to his relationship with Christ, is is this notion of union with Christ, being in Christ. It's this idea of, I am am with Christ, I am in union with him, and, and as I come to know him, I am empowered to live as he did. And so I can give, I can give sacrificially, but I can come back to him and that he can he can refill me, he can enter, he can he can take the weight of it from me. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, anyone who gives up homes and family and life in this life. Uh, if you give it all up, you're going to get it all back in this life and in the next. He's saying because when you unite yourself with Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave, when you press into that, then he takes it, he enables you and energizes you to be able to give sacrificially but not to bear the weight of that. You see, that's what your relationship with God is all about. You know that? It really isn't for you at all. Your relationship with God isn't about you. You have a relationship with God to empower you to be the people of God, to be what he's called us to be, to go out and be the means through which compassion comes into this world, but not to bear the weight of that. We're called to give and forgive sacrificially, but not to bear the weight 
of that sacrifice. And I want to emphasize here, now I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness. Because the book of Jonah really ultimately is all about forgiveness. If you think about it in its historical context, the people of Israel reading this story in the 7th century, 6th century, 5th century, in other words, reading this story in the wake of the Assyrian invasion when the Assyrians came in and wiped out their nation. And this book is there to help them to wrestle with their anger, to help them to forgive. So I want us to talk about what it looks like. What do you do when somebody wrongs you? What do you do when somebody sins against you? And I want to employ an illustration to help us with this. I want you to imagine that when somebody sins against you, when somebody wrongs you, the resulting situation is that you are holding their hand while they are hanging over a cliff. And you have four options. You have four options. You are holding the hand of this person who has sinned against you over a cliff. You have four options. The first thing that you could do is pretend that this isn't happening. You can just pretend that this isn't happening. You can pretend that they didn't sin against you. You can pretend, and one of the ways we do this is by making excuses for them. We make excuses about why that, you know, well, we talked about this last week. Well, he yelled at me because he was tired. He was tired. That's why he yelled at me. And, 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 And he's acting out that way because of things that have happened to him. So, so he, didn't have a, he doesn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice. Right? You take the choice out of it, and then it's, there's not really sin anymore. Because he didn't even have a choice anymore. You're making excuses for them. And, of course, what's the problem with this? Well, there are a couple problems with this, and that is that if you make an excuse for somebody's sin in the past, then what's going to stop them from using that same excuse in the future? If, 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 if he was tired, and that's why he yelled at you in the past, then, well, the next time that he's tired, he has the same excuse to yell at you in the future. The other problem is that to make excuses is it's not really to live in reality. Because the reality is they did have a choice. They did have a choice. And, and the reality is this is happening. You are holding them over this. So excuses don't. What is it? What are excuses? Well, when you make excuses for people's sin, what you're doing is you're offering compassion at the expense of justice. It's compassion at the expense of justice. So excuses doesn't work. There's a second way in which you can respond to those who have sinned against you. You're holding them over the cliff. You can let go. You can retaliate. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let them fall down that cliff because after all, you've already been over that cliff. That's how you got into this mess in the first place. Because they threw you over that cliff. You fell a thousand feet down that cliff. In fact, you're still recovering from that. You're still in a cast. You're still going to physical therapy at three days a week. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't experience the consequences of the sin that that person did to you. So you know what? If you just let go, you're just doing to them what they did to you. It's an eye for an eye, and it's a tooth for a tooth. What's that? That's justice without compassion. The problem is that God is also a just God. He's a just God, and because he's a just God, this is what he says. He says, okay, I'm going to treat you the way you treat others. 
So if you don't want to show compassion, that's fine. Then I'm not going to show you compassion either. Are you sure you want to go that route? Because I'm not sure that that person is the only person hanging over the cliff. So making excuses doesn't work. Retaliation doesn't work. There's a third option. You're holding that person over the cliff. You can try to just bear the weight yourself. You can try to just hold them there. In other words, you can atone for their sin. You can atone for it. You can seek to bridge the gap for their sin. You can try to forgive. But here's what you need to understand. This is really important. Forgiveness is above your pay grade. Forgiveness is above your pay grade. We're not equipped. We're not able to forgive. We're not able to absorb and to atone and to bear the weight of that. Have you ever tried to hold somebody's hand over a cliff? You ever tried to do that? You, you, maybe you can do it for a little while, but it, it's, it's going to start to pull on you. It's going to start to weigh on you. And, and, and there's going to come this point when, when you're, you're going you're gonna to have to retaliate. You're going to have to. You're going to be forced to. Either they're going to start to slip, or you're going to be forced to retaliate. And that forced retaliation usually comes in the form of bitterness. Just bitterness. And, and it's a bitterness that then comes out in all kinds of areas of your life. And so now that retaliation doesn't always come out towards the person that, that sinned against you. Now that retaliation, that bitterness starts coming out in all other areas of your life, in your relationships at work, your relationship at home with your family. So that doesn't work. Excuses don't work. Retaliation doesn't work. Trying to forgive by your own strength, that doesn't work. But in light of the gospel, there is a fourth option. As you reach out and as you're holding you reach up with your left hand and you reach up to the cross and Jesus reaches out his hand. He takes a hold and he says, I will bear the weight for you. The heart of the gospel is that we were never meant to bear the weight of sin. God's compassion comes at his own expense. Today, we're doing something unprecedented. We're being very cutting edge, very progressive. We are doing communion two Sundays in a row. And the reason for this is because normally when we take communion, the focus is on giving our sin to God. And that's incredibly important. That is the focus. Because once again, we're all hanging over the cliff. That's the focus. But today, I want us to see the communion is also an opportunity, not only for us to cast our own sin, but to cast the burden of other people's sin on us. The communion becomes a way to help us 
to begin to forgive others by, by giving the weight of that to God. And so what I would encourage you to do is to think about, is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone where perhaps you need to enter into the process of forgiveness? And forgiveness is a process. It's not necessarily something that happens overnight. It can take a long period of time, but communion is an opportunity for us to come before God and say, God, I can't bear this. I can't forgive. I need you to take care of this. Will the ushers please come forward? Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning as those of us Not only have we sinned, Lord, but we have been sinned against. God, I pray that you would begin to work in us, that we would begin to rely on you, that we would press into you more and more and more. And God, that we would give the hurt and the pain to you. That we are not able to forgive on our own strength, but you are. So God, I pray that as we take these elements, God, that you might lift some of that burden from us. Pray this in Jesus' name.